Okay, so I'm doing the reading first. So it's from 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, um, verse 1 to 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ it is, is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Yes, Father, I just pray that um, what I'm about to say will really glorify you and um, thank you for the chance to be able to speak for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, I don't know about your family, but amongst the many challenges that COVID brought us has been the sometimes divisive interpretations we've each had of the different and very confusing COVID regulations. In fact, just over a year ago, I remember thinking our whole house was going to spontaneously combust under the stress of having to keep our then 17-year-old son locked in whilst he waited over a week for his COVID test results. As well as having to suffer the injustice of being locked in with his boring family, he was tortured by FOMO as his friends were out enjoying a brief lockdown respite. He was well and hadn't been in contact with anyone who wasn't. But a, a zealous doctor had told him to get tested whilst he was, examined him 
for a chest infection just to be on the safe side. In my family, the stress boiled around the different opinions we had about the regulations. I expect we're not alone in that dynamic. Some of us are rule keepers and rigidly cling to the letter of the law, me, myself and I in the case of my family. <laughs> While others, the rest of my family, tend to err uh, more towards the common sense position of trying to find a middle ground by interpreting the spirit of the law. Rule keepers are not popular at the best of time, but even less so when the rules seem to go against common sense. I felt pretty pummeled by the end of that week. But thankfully, the negative test result eventually came back, and our son was allowed out, and we could all breathe a sigh of relief. We were friends again. The reason I share this anecdote is as a light intro into a hefty passage. In our passage today, Paul is talking about one of his favourite subjects, the comparison between the Old and the New Covenants, the Law and the Spirit. Specifically, he's talking about what it means to be entrusted with the ministry of the New Covenant, which produces righteousness and excels in glory. I want to encourage you as we unpack Paul's thinking in order to be able to truly appreciate the tremendous hope that Paul has in this New Covenant and to be able to share in the inevitable boldness that he says it brings. In terms of the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant, Paul was an expert. As one of the first Jewish born-again Christians, it was his specialised subject. Paul was first and foremost a Jew who took great pride in his Jewish heritage. He lays out his Jewish credentials in Philippians 3. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. He was also a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus, and he was raised according to the Hebrew law and culture. He eventually moved to Israel and became a Pharisee, which means he was dedicated to keeping the law in minute detail. His whole life would have been consumed by religiously observing over 600 laws from the Torah, including the rituals concerning ceremonial purification. He then added to these in his zealous pursuit of exterminating all new followers of the way. This was until his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, when he met the way for himself. Then everything changed. His encounter with Jesus Christ changed him forever, the way rule-keeping or laws never could. In today's passage, he opens by telling the church in Corinth that they themselves are like a living love letter from Christ, demonstrating God's Spirit living in them and validating his ministry. This is in contrast with the old covenantal system of the law that brought condemnation. For, he says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law was God's way of setting apart his people as his people by instructing the Jews how to live. The law had become religion. Religion, in turn, fostered hearts of stone and hearts that were far from God. It was never God's intention to leave his people with hearts of stone. Paul would have been familiar with the prophet Ezekiel, who was around just under 600 years before Christ and declared God, um, God's promise. 
I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the hearts of stone from their bodies and I will give them tender hearts so that they may follow my statutes and observe my regulations and carry them out. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. Paul continues his comparison of the old and the new by describing the degree and the duration of the glory which each brought, as well as by comparing the way people engaged with this glory. Now, glory is a hard thing to define, but I, I think that it's the, es- the essence of the meaning of glory is the beauty and goodness of God on display for all to see. Paul describes how Moses had to cover his face with a veil when he'd come back from meeting with God after receiving the law in the form of the Ten Commandments. His face dazzled so brightly with the reflection of God's glory. And I have to say here, I got confused so Rachel clarified for me because I did think that it risked frightening the people um, and that people were blinded to God's glory. By it. But not only that, it gradually fa- faded. However, all this changed with Christ to establish the new covenant or a new relationship between God and his people. He brought the tremendously greater glory and he removed the veil and in doing so allowed believers to both behold the glory of God forever and be transformed into that glory. Imagine that, both reflecting and radiating God's beauty and goodness forever. I think Paul wants to remind us today that when one turns to Christ, the veil is no more, which means there is nothing between us and God's glory. And I think he wants to ask us, do you truly know the hope that this brings? And are you able to behave with boldness? Going back to my opening anecdote about COVID regulations, You'll remember that I confessed my tendency to veer towards the position of blind rule-keeper. I'm not going to make excuses for myself, but I do wonder if it may be a hangover from my boarding school days when survival was all about rule-keeping and privileges. No one wanted their tuck confiscated, and we all wanted to be good enough to get on the list, which meant we were allowed to make the odd phone call um, home and even go on a weekly visit into town. My family, however, boldly led by my sometimes rebellious and irresistible husband, tends to question the rules a lot more. That's another sermon for another day. But I think he's right asking, what is the spirit of the law? However, I don't believe any of us Christian rule keepers could answer this question without changing the question from what is the spirit of the law to who is the spirit of the law? And importantly, do we know him? Perhaps then we might be able to find the boldness in our faith. We know that God himself was the author of the law and the word of life and the truth. Jesus said about himself, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Of course, Jesus Christ is the spirit of the law and he invites us to know him because he brings freedom. Jesus, by his life and death, fulfilled the law and removed the veil for us. There is nothing between us and God. We are free to gaze upon and reflect God's glory. We are free from condemnation. 
we are reconciled with and reconnected to the source of love himself. From that place of safety, we're free from self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and we can be sure of our righteousness in him. We can commit our whole lives to seeking the ultimate treasure of knowing Christ. We can be bold in our faith and free to love. As Paul says in Philippians 3, following on from the list of his pharisaical credentials, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's in this active pursuit of knowing Christ that we will be transformed and our hearts become one with God. His presence in us will shine more brightly and we can live to shine with him, for him, with him, with boldness, in the knowledge that we were made for exactly that and one day we will partake in his glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. As we seek to know him daily, it might think to think, help to think of three Bs. Behold, believe, and become. Behold, practice a life of wonder and adoration at who God is and what he has done. Enjoy the beauty of his creation. Look for his majesty in the mountains, the skies, and the oceans. Ponder the perfect life of selflessness he lived on earth, as seen through the eyes of those who knew him in the Bible. Feed on him as you daily read his word. Meditate on the beauty and the splendour, as well as the horror of the cross. Marvel at the incredible love demonstrated by our Saviour. Believe. Believe that the God who caused light to shine in the darkness has shone his light into your heart. See yourself the way he sees you, worth dying for. Um, as he saw all that you could become, he saw Jesus in you before you were made. Believe that he is living in us and let his life become ours, free from the tyranny of self. Believe that he wants to spend time with you, to relate with you, and you can start to know the transformative power of his love as you live, treasured, beloved, treating your life as a gift. How often in those secret times of beholding who he is could we literally throw ourselves at his feet in simple adoration? This is the kind of freedom that he wants for us. Freedom to accept his love, accept he has done it all. Freedom from the fear of death, freedom to be transformed by his grace. I find it helpful to remember the paradoxical state that exists, that of marvelling at his absolute otherness, but also in listening out for his small voice speaking from within us. Believe all this and you will start to become, and he will be glorified brilliantly and effortlessly. 
But a word of warning, if you find you're becoming slowing down or becoming stagnant, ask yourself are you, uh, if you're going back to the old way of stubborn self-sufficiency, doing religion. Are you getting too comfortable? Jesus did not die for us so that we could be wrapped up in cotton wool and flung into some pseudo-heavenly realm of comfort. No, he died to empower us to live and he, as he lived and, he, and to die as he died. I can hear his grief and warnings at my own default position seeking comfort. His voice becomes faint and hard to hear. But if I strain really hard, I sometimes hear him say, Do you really need me? Do you really know me in your comfort, in your lack of need? Are you still able to depend on me? I like to remember that his heart is for the poor, but also for those of us who live with the poverty of having too much. In dying to self, we must live outside of our comfort zone. We take risks and we live generously. During that horrible week of fighting with my family last October, I had a brief text exchange with my friend, Caroline, from my Bible study group. She was sympathetic to my moans about the familial stress we were enduring. She sweetly replied, it was pretty stressful at ours too, and everyone has different opinions, risk, appetite, view of the rules, etc. I'm a rule keeper to the letter, which others struggle with if it goes against common sense, understandably. If I give you a bit more background, you will realise that this message was so much more than just an empathetic nod. Caroline had four teenagers, young adults of her own, and she'd been isolating due to the fact that she was undergoing treatment for cancer. She spent a hard four years living very far out of her comfort zone, battling cancer. Caroline died at the end of October this year. Last Saturday, I went to a Thanksgiving service for her life at Holy Trinity Coombe Down. The church was literally bursting at the seams and there were people forced to attend the service outside as well as many other people live streaming via Zoom. This was evidence of the amount of lives she had touched. Caroline was an incredible and beautiful woman who lived her life to glorify God. She lived a life of love, always caring first for others. And during the time of her illness, she exuded grace and faith and courage. She was not afraid of dying, as she knew exactly where she was going. Her faith in Jesus was tangible. In the last few days before she died, she took the time to write her Bible study group a letter of farewell. I will just read a few lines from that letter. I know that as you read this, I will be with Jesus, which is better by far. I commend my family to you. Please look after them and keep striving to glorify God and make him known. Everyone who knew Caroline met Jesus, whether they recognised him or not. I will finish with the words of Paul again, this time from Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So therefore, let us be free to love boldly. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. <laughs>